Joining us for another episode of TalkScript, we're recording live-ish from the always beautiful Carlsbad, California after taking the podcast on the road to JSConf US 2018. This conference had two tracks packed with great speakers, vacation-esque activities, and new stickers to add to our ever-expanding laptop mosaic. Over the next few episodes, we'll be talking with various speakers, including Kevin O'Neill, Nick Navedita, Oddbird's Miriam Suzanne, Test Double's Justin Searles, and many more. Let's get started! All right, we're back at JSConf US 2018, and we're talking to Miles Borens. Welcome, Miles. Hi, thanks for having me. How's it going? Going well. Um, there's a lot going on, so just trying to squeeze everything in. And you know, it's interesting being at these events where you make tons of commitments, and then you have to like, you know, I was running over to the booth to help with the booth, Follow and through. then I looked at my <laughs> clock and I was like, oh wait, no, actually, it is time for podcasting. So I was like, okay, bye. <laughs> Hi, bye. <laughs> I'll totally help later. Yeah. <laughs> Good excuses. So you're you're talking at JSConf about adventures in ethical computing. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that and what your talk's about? Yeah, so at kind of like a really, really high level, ethics is a really important thing for us to think about in everything that we do in our lives. From the really high level of like, you know, like what even is ethical? So like meta-ethics of like describing, you know, like what is even the concepts of good and bad? Mm-hmm. Uh, you get kind of a layer down, you get to like the normative ethics of what does it mean for something to be like like uh, like a really great example and i talk about this in my talk is there's kind of three tiers of ethics when we're talking in philosophy you have meta ethics normative ethics and applied ethics and so the example i'm giving in my talk is kind of like meta ethics is like is truth fundamentally good is the concept of truth fundamentally good and like a normative ethics of that would be like is lying bad and then you know applied ethics of that is is it ethical for news organizations to not be fully transparent in what they're saying? And so, you know, we can apply these kinds of frameworks to all the different things that we're doing. And I think it's really important as engineers when we're making things that touch so much of people's lives to really think both about kind of the consequences of our actions, but also what we're working on and what kind of people we want to be and what kind of things we want to be making in the world. So would you, would this help with making ethical robots or no? That's where I thought this was going to go. Well, I mean, AI, machine learning, robotics are definitely things that this applies to. One of the examples I will be digging into is photo recognition and some of the ethical concerns there. One of the discussions, like from a philosophical standpoint, is like, from metaethics, it's like, what makes something ethical? Like, is it based on these kind of Judeo-Christian values? Is it like these kind of core common concepts that we just know? Is it based on consequence? So when we're talking about AI as well, like, what does it mean to be ethical with AI? We can do it all based on consequences, or we can do it based on, like, you know, don't be God, or we could do it... should probably build that into every AI, just, <laughs> just preventatively. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it's definitely important, but I think... You know, this goes down to like every system that we build. People have inherent bias. People have biases that they're aware of and unconscious bias as well. And those biases end up reflected in the models that create the systems that we create. So whether it's AI or, you know, a form login, a CFP for a conference, you know, your bias is going to be inherent in all of these different things. And so I think questioning those models and thinking about it is really important. Yeah, definitely. And it's important to to understand where it's not always like you, like I think you're kind of elaborating to, it's not always like a, a clear line between good and evil or even what good or evil is and so that's kind of what it is, what your talk's kind of about. Yeah, it's absolutely not binary. One of the things I'll be touching on in the talk also is this concept of reflective equilibrium. So you kind of, on one hand, have your core values and your ethics and your morals and kind of like in their purest state. And then on the other hand, you have like your actual life experiences. Mm. And our life experiences are constantly challenging our pure ethics and morals. And so we, we have to do a lot of questioning and introspection to kind of balance our experience to what our morals are. You know, like I myself grew up in a family that was very law abiding and it was very much a thing where like when I was a kid, I always just said, oh, laws are good. Laws are moral. I will follow every law. And when I was in junior high and high school, I was introduced to concepts like civil disobedience. And I have seen many unjust laws and 
I have to adjust my core moral principles based on my experience. And that's an ongoing thing. You can almost actually compare it to a Markov chain <laughs> in a way. <laughs> but I think that's really important. And similarly, like we can do things that we think are truly ethical. I talk about airbags a little bit in my talk. I don't think anyone's going to be like, hey, you're making airbags. You're, you're a terrible person. Why would you do that? And if we look at the results of all the lives that have saved, it's without question that this is an ethical thing. But there's still, when you dive into the stats on who's died yeah, from, um, an airbag. from airbags. Who's lost a limb, who's, you know. It, it disproportionately affects small-statured women and children. And, you know, the numbers are, like, on such a scale, I almost even didn't talk about it. Because, like, it's thousands of lives being saved. And, like, maybe 175 reported deaths due to airbags in the first 10 years between 1990 and 2001 when they were actually recording these statistics. So these are not like massive numbers of deaths, but you can still see by diving into them that there are biases within <laughs> it. And that doesn't mean we can't improve, even if we're doing great. Well, if they killed old white men, we'd probably know more about this stat. But, you know, just going with the biases in the media and everything. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's one of the interesting things, too, and I'll show some stats around this, independent of, like, who it affects. I think it's really easy when you look at, at the statistics from a high level to think that we're much more successful than we are when we dive in and see how they statistically affect different marginalized and intersectionally marginalized groups. And you start to see it significantly more affects those groups, and it gets masked when we do these kind of, like, large surveys of the data. So it seems like ethics is a topic that keeps reoccurring in, in um, tech recently, and I think it's important to to discuss that. Can you maybe, I don't know where I'm going with this. Save me, Tori. So I'm going to just do a dance. No, I, no idea. <laughs> where, I don't know where you're going with that. Um, <laughs> Why? <so. laughs> Why, yeah. <laughs> Thank you. I think that ethics are something that in engineering principles has always been something that is, like, in, a great example is in Canada. If you get an engineering degree, you actually have a ring that you get. Wow. That you wear on your pinky finger. It's a metal ring, and it's made from the metal of a bridge that collapsed due to engineering neglect that killed many, many people. That took a dark turn. <laughs> <laughs> and if you're a doctor, you get, okay, this but, is a scalpel that killed someone. Yeah. And I think it's just so that engineers are always constantly reminded that, like, you know, the things that you're building directly affect people. And I try to touch on some different examples in the talk because, you know, I think for different people, they have different ethical and moral principles, as we were talking about, like from a meta-ethics level, like where do you even start to derive what ethical means? Mm -hmm. And, you know, so for some people that would be like, we have like rights. There are like core human rights and my ethics are drawn from that. Or there are people who will examine consequences of actions and draw ethics from that. And for some people, those consequences may be very much about themselves. Yeah. So I'll talk about Volkswagen and the people who are arrested for fudging diesel engine output measurements. And so, you know, I don't think it is so simple. To a lot of different people, there are different things that they will be ethically aligned on. I hope for most people, it's like, I don't want to kill people. But, you know, warfare is also an industry that a lot of engineers work in. And that's an interesting question, too. It's like, at what point is it okay to do those things? And these are serious questions in AI right now, especially around robotics or drones or computer vision. I am going to step back from talking any more about any of those specific topics because it is just asking for trouble and I'm not an expert on it. But I think that people in general are pretty aware of how all this aligns and software development ends up being almost more kind of like a distributed trade. And we don't really have these organizations like engineers in Canada where like, you need to have graduated from a school and be certified and be part of a guild to be able to call yourself this. Anyone can kind of step in and do it. And so I think, at least for myself and for other people, it's really easy to imagine kind of falling into this career because you were doing a million different things. I mean, I studied in my undergrad fine art and music and my master's. There was an engineering focus in both, but I'm not like a classically trained engineer. I never had to take a course in ethics as part of my study, whereas like, you know, at UCLA today, students in CS degrees have to take a course in ethics as part of their first year as a freshman. So I, I think it's good to turn people on to these ideas, to get them thinking about it, asking these questions, discussing it both like philosophically and practically and just challenging them themselves to consider it and to even consider that saying no to doing something is an option. Yeah, I think that's a huge thing because it's definitely something that, you know, you can end up as if you like we do, we work in consulting and you can be in a situation where you suddenly you have to do customer work and 
you don't, that's just like, like what you're doing doesn't agree with your ethics. And that can be a challenging thing because how do you say no when your job depends on your, you know, and you start to just rationalize it away. So, mm -hmm. you know, I think that's a good, good thing though to remind people, like just because you're there working doesn't mean you have to do that work if you don't feel comfortable doing it. Like it's your life, like, and you can say, no, I'm not going to be part of that, you know? And you talked about the concept of privilege a little bit earlier, and we don't need to dig too much into that, but I think like something that's interesting to mention on this too, as we're talking about no, not every engineer, not every person who's working has that privilege of being able to say no. And I mean, it would be arrogant to get on stage and tell everyone to say, hey, just say no to shit that you think is unethical. That's right. But the flip side of that, a lot of people who are working on these systems that have these really high-level ethical concerns, if you're working on artificial intelligence, if you're working on robotics, if you're working on some of these algorithms that affect the data that people are exposed to, for the most part, you are actually probably a senior engineer, you demand a high salary, you are working for a respected organization, you're actually in the position to say no. And, you know, if you look at, like, Google came out with our own AI ethics policy recently, the ACM now has some ethics guidelines, and those don't happen just because like some organization said it. It happened because an engineer said no. That engineer said no, it convinced a group of people to say no. The group of people who said no convinced an organization to take a stance. And so I think it's really easy in all facets of our life to feel disempowered, to feel like we can't actually affect change. I see this every single day. I work helping to manage the open source project Node.js. And I see every single day collaborators who don't feel empowered to say no to things or to suggest changes or even to make a pull request. And every single change starts from an idea and a person being willing to do the work. And so I think as an industry, we need to feel empowered to step forward and own those ethics that we have and try to make changes at an industry level to ensure these things. And I don't know what the end game looks like there, but, but it starts with one person saying no. Do you think it could be difficult for people to realize that they're part of this bigger unethical machine? Because sometimes, especially with, in software, where you may not be working on like the full picture of some big unethical thing, you might just be working on a small piece that is by itself totally fine. Do you think that it's hard to identify those in some cases? I think it's hard at times to know the scope of the work that you're doing and how it will affect things. I mean, Node.js, I know for a fact, has, you know, it's in Electron, has been used for ransomware because Electron has been used for ransomware. Do I feel ethically compromised because of that? Maybe a little bit in the sense that like, I'm not happy that happened, but like, am I just not supposed to work on technology period? And I think that this is part of that equilibrium that we were yep. talking about. I think that there is definitely a need for transparency with an organization so that engineers know the full scope of the work that they're doing and how it affects it. But you're not always gonna have that scope. And I think it's, you know, what do you do when you find that out? That is that ethical dilemma where you have to like figure these things out. So when you found out that Electron was used and stuff for ransomware and Node, do you just build your own ransomware? Is that what you did? Because that seems like the logical choice to make because who? why not you be the one to profit off of it, you know? Who ransoms the ransomers? That's right. <laughs> That's right. I've, I've inverse bit-crypted your bit-chain. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, for myself, you know, I am not in a position where I feel like I need to do that. I think I can have some empathy for people who feel so disenfranchised that that's the only way in which they can make money. And then I quickly have no empathy because they're totally scumbags. Yeah, or but, part of organized crime or, you know, all these other things. Yeah. I think for me, I mostly put it on the back burner of like, here's one of the interesting use cases of Node. It's like they use it at NASA to monitor spacesuits. They use it at Netflix to serve you videos. That jerk used it to lock your computer and charge you three bitcoins. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's just the result of it. And I, you know, I, I would be very surprised to not find out that as a core technology it's using in lots of things, you know, POSIX is probably being used in a ton of things that people would not want to see it be used in. Perhaps that's something we could explore in a licensing model, but it gets really hard to encode things like ethics and morality into a software well, license. Well, especially, and that's the <laughs> thing is, you know, it is, it's a very interesting topic and I definitely look forward to your talk on it because there are so many things that you don't even necessarily, like you said, you don't know what the end product's actually going to be. And especially in open source software, people are building tools and then other people are using them for things that you have no control over because it's open source. Like they can mm -hmm. do whatever they want with it. And that as a byproduct, they can use your tool to create an interface to launch bombs, you know, mm -hmm. and do things like that. You know, there's, there's a real world impact, but you have nothing, like, that wasn't your intent and that doesn't fit with your morals, but at the same time, that happened. And now you look at it and go, well, 
gosh, where do I fit into this picture? Like, how am I responsible for it? Just like, just like you said with the, mm-hmm. with the no example. I mean, that's something there. It's really hard to, and also just the incremental steps that get taken over time might lead to something that's much worse than you ever knew it was going to be. And you're now in the middle of this cycle and you, you know, you're just making, you're advancing the football one yard, but you know, eventually it will get down the field and become this worst thing that you can't foresee that, you know, yeah. but you played a part in it. And you know, that kind of thinking is this kind of existential thing. Like if you work on technology and you work on anything that's open source and anything that's like a platform or a framework or technology people use to make technology, you have no control over what they're going to use it for. And that starts to bring in an interesting dilemma as well, which is like, if people are going to use these things in unethical ways, or whether or not something is arguably ethical, if it's going to be used for warfare, as one example, should you participate? You know, there's definitely a question that gets asked, which is like, well, if I don't do it, someone else will. And if we can do it in a better way, then like we could probably do harm reduction. And harm reduction is a really interesting thing to think about, especially around like a lot of drug policies. And drugs is an interesting ethical dilemma. And you look at countries, I'm forgetting the specific European country where they decriminalized all drugs and saw major harm reduction and reduction in, in needle use and in diseases and in addiction because like people are actually seeking therapy, they were not being jailed. And so, you know, if we just kind of engage, like maybe it can be better. But the flip side of that is if everyone just engages in things that are truly unethical and we should not in any way participate in, no one's saying no. And it takes people saying no to doing things that like, you know, an organization that's respected saying no to doing certain types of practices gives researchers and other engineers and other individuals something to point to as an example to say, hey, I'm not going to do it. And, you know, these other leaders in the industry are also not going to do it. And if everyone just kind of assumed, well, everything's going to happen and we may as well profit off of it or we may as well like harm reduce, we will never see long term regulation. And so, you know, I think that's a good point because a lot of things people kind of see as inevitable, but they're only inevitable because you don't believe you can make that change or you can stop it. And if you believe it's inevitable, then it makes it you can justify it to yourself and you can say, well, if it's inevitable, I'll just profit off it because, hey, it's going to happen anyway. I might as well get something for it. And that's really not the right way of looking at it in, in a lot of cases. Or it's, you know, it's not inevitable. It's not definitely going to happen. And if big technology companies don't stand up and speak out against this stuff, the government will never regulate it. Yeah. Great. Well, we look forward to your talk. I'm really excited about it now. That's wonderful. Thank you very much. Yeah, we Um, appreciate you sitting down with us today. My pleasure. Thank you so much for the time. Hello, and welcome to TalkScript. Uh, We're at JSConf 2018 on day three, and we are here with Tim Doherty, and he's going to be telling us about his talk. Tim, would you like to say hello? Yeah, hi. So it's good to be here. Uh, This is my uh, third time at a JSConf event. I spoke at uh, last call back in 2015 and I came back again, submitted a talk for track A, didn't make the cut, but uh, I was able to get a slot on track B uh, on Tuesday and talked about ES6. Nice. Yeah. So the title of your talk was ES6 in practice. Uh, So tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So, you know, it's been three years since the spec was finalized and uh, I had been kind of following it in development. And then when it was getting ready to be finalized in 2015, I took a deep dive and decided the best way to learn it was to teach it. I run Santa Barbara JavaScript. So I did a three-part series of in-depth talks and coding exercises to cover pretty much the entire surface area of the spec. And then, you know, I went back to an enterprise software company where I worked and championed, you know, aggressively pushing for ES6 Mm -hmm. uh, in production and, uh, you know, got a lot of pushback because we're probably, we were at the time a publicly held company and uh, everything goes through committee, the Enterprise Software Architecture Committee. And it was challenging and somewhat entertaining going through that process, but I was able in the space of a couple of months to kind of bring data to the table and cogent arguments for why we should do it now. And uh, so the talk kind of, the, the talk starts out with that journey this sort of entertaining journey, you know, trying to get things through an enterprise software architecture committee and getting people to buy into it, and then goes sort of in depth into what I feel are the really important parts of ES6 spec. And what's remarkable three years later is that most teams have barely scratched the surface in terms of what's in the spec. There's also a lot of confusion over what's in ES6 versus what's in 2016, 2017, 2018. A lot mm-hmm. of people think that features from 2016 or 2015 didn't drop until later mm-hmm. and vice versa. So, you know, I like the syntactic sugar is nice. 
you know, the, the object shorthands, template literals, arrow functions, they're all nice and they're great and saving the boilerplate's wonderful. But the real meaty stuff, in my opinion, is things like generators and proxies. Proxies people have barely touched. Yes. And so I'm really interested in driving that conversation. Uh -huh. And also, you know, this, this was the first major update to the language in 20 years, really. Yeah. And it lets us, to a certain extent, pull back on some of the libraries and frameworks we just pull in willy-nilly for common utilities. Yeah. So it's really exciting stuff. And you know, this was a talk that I gave last year. And uh, you know, since I got a track B-spot, it was easy to sort of take that same talk and cut it down a little bit um, for this format. So uh, you mentioned that at your company, trying to get, the, get ES6 in, and you had to go through a committee, are there... Any like specific challenges that, or like points of resistance by the committee that for reasons so they you know the to... biggest one at that company. I'm at a different company now where we have. Oh yeah, then Dish. I was not gonna. I wasn't gonna ask, but I go now. Yeah. Yeah. So we have the opposite problem. I'm at Procore Technologies now, which is the best company I've ever worked for, hands down. Uh, it, it no bullshit. It's just an absolutely great place to work. And nice. If anyone's listening and is interested in working on amazing stuff, definitely get in touch with me. They have the opposite problem, which is they have a lot of younger developers who came at JavaScript after ES6 was released, and so like there's lots of production code with stage zero Babel presets in it. And yeah. That makes me a little uneasy. That's yeah. the opposite side of the fence. Yes. Um, at Agilisys, most of the enterprise software uh, committee was current and former backend developers, Java guys, who, you know, Java, the Java ecosystem is notoriously resistant to change. Mm -hmm. And I get that. Uh, so a lot of it was fun. A lot of it was just not understanding that this, these are features that are now part of the language and that also, you know, the community has been using, they've been future-proofing themselves by using tools like Babel to use features today that haven't yet been implemented by browser manufacturers. Yep. So a lot of it was just not understanding that it is safe and that really at this point still, anything that makes it to stage three is probably a safe bet yeah. uh, to use in production, even if it's being transpiled. Yeah, definitely. And I, that's something that uh, Babel, I think, has been taking a look at recently with uh, Babel 7. They're dropping a lot of their, I forget what they're called, their stage like stage zero, stage one uh, defaults or templates or whatever, I can't remember what they call them, to probably try and push people away from using those earlier stage things because if the syntax changes, then you're painting yourself into a corner and you'd have to go refactor all that code later on. Absolutely. Uh, one thing that we've done with that to try and, and drive adoption of it, but in kind of a safe way, is adopting TypeScript because they do kind of stick to the stage three features uh, and re-implement those, but then also the we get the benefits of type safety. They do, although TypeScript, at least a couple of years ago, was pushing out decorators while they were still at stage two. Yes. And so that was one of my hesitancies to, to adopting TypeScript. Yeah. Is they're pushing out experimental features you know, into production code bases. I think that was to, to entice Angular to drop their at script. And I, I get it. Yeah. I totally get why. <laughs> and there's always strategic reasons why. Yeah. Uh, and it's interesting, TypeScript is an active conversation right now, Procore. Uh -huh. And there's a, lot of, uh, there's a lot of devs that feel that they want to bring TypeScript in for the safety that provides. And, and it's great. I, I have no problem with that. Like, I kind of side with Alan Kay that I've never met a type system that wasn't more of a pain in the ass than it was worth. <laughs> sure. You know, type checking is great at catching a certain subset of problems that can go wrong in your right. application, but they're not the kind that I usually find myself tackling like, or, or really getting blocked by. Sure. And so we also have a, a dearth of tests in our front-end code there, and that's one of the things I was brought in to help with. I'm a big proponent of test-driven development. Yeah. So like, TypeScript is great, but not in absence of you know, good best practices, tests, and things like that. I'd sure. rather have test-driven development first and then bring TypeScript and for the extra safety that it provides. And one other thing that's really nice about TypeScript is it formalizes interfaces. Yep. So you can do that in JavaScript. You can program against an interface. It's just that you have to be the one that, that defines the contract and abides by it, whereas a formalized interface concept actually can codify that for you. Yeah, that was actually, Nick gave a talk yesterday or Tuesday on the track fee as well, and it was uh, types, no one got time for that. Um, or something like that, right? No time for types. No time for types. Yeah. I remember the old title that we had. I can't believe you changed it on me. Um, but it was actually exactly that point was at the end of like, it doesn't replace tests, yeah. but it enhances your development and your tests. And like, it, it, potentially, it potentially precludes a whole category of tests you right. would otherwise write. Right. Right? Like, yeah. I have no problem with it, and I'm, I'm, I'm all for it, just not in the absence of, like, sure. not as a substitute for tests and yeah. design patterns and common best practices that we have, right? Yeah, definitely. I mean, like, I, I love that, and I, I'm, I'm, I don't know who it was, I'm, gonna, I'm not gonna misattribute the quote, but I love the quote, I'm not a great developer, I'm a competent developer with great habits, right? It's all about discipline. It's I like that quote a lot. habits and things. Yeah. 
some some of the other features that you mentioned, like the syntactic sugar, uh, seems to be pretty well adopted. But tell us a little bit about proxies and what you like about those. So you know the interesting thing about proxies is they open up a whole new avenue for reflective metaprogramming in JavaScript. Yeah. Right? We got some really nice things in ES5 around objects to be able to define properties and their semantics at runtime. One of the common patterns that I've used is intercepting getters and setters to do like validation and things like that, and, mm-hmm. and, and sort of implement the facade pattern, hiding what's going on with something complicated and just expose it as a plain old JavaScript object. And so proxies give us a formalized semantic for that. But they also go deeper. They let you do things like conditional construction of objects by intercepting the constructor and, you know, various ways of redefining the semantics of function calls. Mm -hmm. And uh, part of the limitations, I think, are technical. Like proxies can't be transpiled. So you rely on the browser actually supporting them to be able to use them. And so that's one of the reasons I think teams are roadblocked for it. The other is I think people just don't understand how they work, or mm-hmm. why you would use them in the first place. That's what I get a lot from developers. It's like, yeah, whatever, proxies, wh- why would you use them? And so I'm really interested in reaching a point. So, for example, we support as far back as IE11, which yep. we obviously can't use proxies. In how great is it course. that we live in a world where we can say as far back as IE11? Yeah, it's, it's a beautiful thing. Because <laughs> if you've been around for a while, yeah. it's like, it's I mean, a, we were like, I still support IE6 and Netscape yeah. 4. And now oh, it's like, man, oh, uh, IE11. I remember the pre-jQuery days where you wrote two sets of code, <laughs> one, one for Netscape and one for yes. Microsoft, right? Um, and so, you know, I think uh, I look forward to a couple of years from now when we can safely roll out proxies and, and sort of explore the magic that, that is available to us there. That, that's a, an interesting word. I was just going to bring that up. Do you think that there's some issue with it bringing too much magic to JavaScript because it's harder to, to understand, you know, that maybe something is being intercepted and that whole like stepping through code process with that? Maybe, maybe. But I think, you know, and again, like I think uh, it's a case of education, right? So sure. like I'm really interested as I as I work with new teams. So like my role at work right now is I'm, I'm a floater. So I go from squad to squad mm-hmm. and I sort of bring some collective experience. I've been doing this now for almost 23 years. And that doesn't mean that I'm great at what I do, but I do bring some experience to bear. Sure. And so like I'm going in and looking at like what the state of their code is and their processes and where we can potentially level people up. And uh there's a tendency to look at a technology and not go any deeper than the service. And in which case, you know, it's like Arthur C. Clarke said, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic, right? I see that with Webpack all the time. People go, oh man, I can't touch that Webpack config, it's magic. But it turns out the Webpack's really simple. It's just there's a few key concepts you have to understand, yeah. and then everything is rinse and repeat. And so bringing it back to proxies and generators and things like that, yeah, there's no there's no excuse not to understand it if it's part of the language. You know, there's you can always make an argument to not learn the depths of a framework because frameworks come and go. Mm-hmm. The JavaScript language is probably going to be here at least for the foreseeable future until it's supplanted by WebAssembly and all the languages that target it. Yeah, it's I, and for me, it's like I would rather work with developers and get them to that point where they understand at least the basic mechanics of how it works. Mm-hmm. And then the beauty of that is, especially using something like the facade pattern, is that. As far as downstream developers go, they should treat it like magic. It's a black box, right? But we can potentially hide the complicated underpinnings of a system with that. And proxies give us, that's one of the applications that proxies give us. Sure. And so in some cases, magic is good. Right? Yeah. So like programming against an interface, treating things like a black box is always good. Mm-hmm. Right? But the developers that write it, they have, there's no excuse for them not to understand how it works. Yeah. That, that's my opinion. I agree. You know, based yeah. on experience. Do you find that there might be a, a number of people who maybe do this for a living, you know, your work or other places, and they don't understand these things because they're there every day just getting their job done, and it's a new thing, but because they're not utilizing it, they don't take the time to keep up on the, to, to actually understand those things. Because like, if you're not given the time at work, they're like, well, I'm not going to go do that at home. Right? Sure. So I, I think I've seen that, you know, with, with a number of companies because we do consulting. And so you go into these companies and you talk to people and they're, you know, they're very, they know what they're doing for their job. But when you talk to them about, you know, future facing features, they, they have no idea because they don't care. Like it has nothing to do with what I'm doing today. And when I go home, I don't, it's not that important to me, you know. Totally. And I think that's a really fair observation. And I think that's probably the rule rather than the exception. I mean, certainly I, I've been around long enough and worked in enough companies to experience that first time and firsthand and have to go out and learn those things by myself. I'm really fortunate working at Procore in that they're very much a learning organization. They have internal learnings. They bring people on site. They send us to conferences. They're very much about investing in the employee and making sure that they are masters of their craft. And I applaud them for that. Um, I think it's really a short sight in the case of companies that don't invest in their in their employees that way. I mean, if, if you're... 
If your staff only knows the minimum to get their job done, the output's going to be the minimum possible product that will meet the needs. They're never going to go above and beyond. They're never going to really innovate or really satisfy their customers' demands. And so I think it's, and the flip side of that is that sometimes these new techniques and the new language features and new frameworks enable people to do what they're doing better or more efficiently. It's the reason why we get innovations, right? It's not because they're shiny, it's because, not always, sometimes it is because they're shiny, but it's usually because there's some sort of an innovation either in process or technique or, uh, or otherwise that allows you to do the same thing you were doing with less code or smarter code or more composable code. And so sometimes it's just a misconception, it's a myth, right, that, that it's not worth learning that thing. Um, and so I think there's, there's two sides to that coin. One is that um, people don't invest enough in themselves. Another is that companies are, you know, people are under tight deadlines and they're not given the leeway to learn those things on the job. And of course, learning things on the job is the most effective way to do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Without a doubt. Especially under the tight deadline. Yeah. Because it's yeah. like, well, I know how to get this done right now, but learning new stuff requires failing. Right. And, you know, you, you never just, you don't, you know, you're not born, you start running, right? You, you crawl, you move, you crawl, you walk. Sure. And it's the same kind of thing. It's just like, you're going to fail, but when you're going to spend days failing at something, that's not palatable to the deadline you have to get something done. So, you know, I kind of feel like it would be great if more companies push that. And I think that developers in organizations should push that and really try to educate about why that's important. But also, if you're a developer in those companies, you should be investing in yourself. Oh, yeah. And, you know, don't see it as, well, I don't have the time. I don't, you know, I'm tired after work and I don't want to work on work at, but it's like, it's not really working on work. It's working on, you know, yourself and bettering yourself. So it's, it's funny because I get, I get a similar pushback on processes too, like test-driven development. Mm-hmm. There's this misconception that it takes longer. And while there may be a sort of an upfront expense in learning the techniques, learning how to write a good test, learning some of the tools around it, uh, almost invariably you save time going forward, right? Because Absolutely. A, good, a good test suite makes refactoring much faster and much safer, right? And so, and and then there's the pushback that we're under a tight deadline; we can't possibly take the time to, to test, you know, test drive this. And also, um, we just need to deliver something fast. Okay, maybe early in the days of a startup, that's the right mentality. Just scrappy, just get it out there because you never know if you're ever going to be viable, right? But once you reach a certain point where you have customers and you have a market share, there's no excuse not to have tests. I mean, ultimately, if you are in the position where like you've grown to a certain size and your 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 valuation is significant and you're still not writing tests, you're still doing that quick scrappy delivery, it's going to bite you in the ass. Yes. Right? At some point, you're going to make some really embarrassing or fatal mistake. And that could have easily been caught with some discipline and best practices. So investing that time, you know, it's better. It's better to promise something uh, a little bit more liberally and deliver it early than vice versa. The same is true in life, right? Yeah. You say you're going to be there at seven, and you show up at eight. It's better just to say you'll be there at seven thirty, right? Yeah. Yeah. No, it's definitely we we see that all the time. I mean, and, and it's really tough because you have you know these people who understand that, but they're constrained by their boss who's like well, I need to show something and you're like well you'll get something like well we can show something I don't know that it's going to be what you want at the end but you know like at the end you're going to go why don't we have all the tests and all these things it's like well we didn't we showed you something yeah first. so I'm actually actively in this process right now at Procore um, you know part, part of it is like I've got experience working with executives and I'm also the type of person that's not afraid to just go and say what I'm what I'm thinking and uh, you know Procore deserves enormous credit for letting us sort of crowdsource the things that R&D thought were most important for the company to focus on. And so I champion debt, right, tech debt. And, and in my opinion, automated testing is a huge part of that. And so I've been sort of bending the ear of the, the CTO and the director of engineering strategy. And the, the toughest nut to crack was the SVP of product. And we need products buy-in for this to be successful. And so I sat and had lunch with him and I, I sort of explained to him in layman's terms what test-driven development is. And it's, it's, it's a shared understanding of whether or not you understand what the customer wants and whether or not you're actually delivering that. And sort of this light came on, and then we had another event, which was we had uh, customers come on site, and then we paired with customer support and devs to sort of understand what the pain that people are feeling, and pretty much all of that is debt, right? Things that are substandard in the application, it's debt. And I got a, a slack from Brandon, the SVP of product, and he's like, I get it. We're on this call right now, I think this is UX debt, if I'm not mistaken. It's like, I wanna engage with you, let's figure out how to operationalize this. And so. I think to your point, like getting buy-in organization-wide is critical because then you get messaging from the top that, yes, it's okay to do this. It's okay to take a little longer to do it right, right? Because ultimately, we're going to go slow to move faster in the future, faster and more predictably, both in terms of quality and time. Yeah, that's one of the things that um, you you bring up like uh, UX debt, and I'm a designer. So to me, I'm always thinking like, 
you know, how do you do, how do you, how's the best way to do the design and handoff and all those things? And if you have, you know, doing test-driven development, you can do test-driven design, Absolutely. you know, and that's, that's another thing where I think that, you know, designers in general are slowly kind of coming more towards the edge of like code. Mm-hmm. And with a lot of our prototyping tools are becoming more code based. And there, I think there'll be maybe more, hopefully a more of an understanding of we should be partners more with the developers instead of, you know, like I, I have a lot of development knowledge just based on the years of doing this, but I'm not going to go write code. I'm not going to tell them how to write code. And they are going to tell me how to design, but I'm not going to listen. <laughs> like, you know, that's a, the, the really like doing test driven development really helps with that because you can see exactly what you're supposed to do. I'm supposed to make something that does this. I'm supposed Absolutely. to, and then they go, okay, I'm going to develop something that does this and it looks like this. And everyone's on the same page. And then at the end, it, it you wrap it up and say, that's that. And we can keep testing with continuous integration to make sure it still works. Yeah. And when we're talking about front-end engineering, there's so much overlap in those disciplines yeah. mm-hmm. that the more developers can speak design language and vice versa, the less of an impedance mismatch there is. And you're likely to actually be on the same page and deliver something that approximates what you're trying to do. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, thank you so much for sitting down with us today. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Thank you. We're back with Miriam, Suzanne. Uh, Would you like to say hello? Hello. How are you doing? I'm doing all right. How are you? Great, great. So you just gave a talk at JSConf 2018. The name of your talk was Data-Driven CS uh, with Grid and Custom Property. Yeah, I actually, so that name wasn't getting accepted at enough conferences. So I changed the name to Dynamic CSS, Layouts and Beyond, and suddenly everybody wanted it. So (laughs) So (laughs) same talk. Yeah. Tell us a little little bit about it. I've been playing with, I've always enjoyed CSS for the weird things it can do. Mm -hmm. Um, And how. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I remember when I first started using CSS, it was Eric Meyer's Edge page that had all sorts of weird experiments. And now Jen Simmons is doing lots of cool stuff. There's so much interesting new toys to play with. So it's sort of a talk that puts all those together in ways that we've been actually using in production how to combine grids and CSS variables and CSS calc to do really injecting data directly into your CSS, manipulating it in the browser, and doing really data-driven layouts and stuff. Yeah, that is really cool. And there's so many cool things that have changed in CSS and uh, over the past few years. And JavaScript with like ES 2015 plus mm-hmm. gets a lot of attention. And the bigger things in CSS have gotten attention, like right. like Grid, for example. Well, in my world, it's the other way around. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I spend most of my time at CSS conferences. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm mostly hearing about CSS. Uh-huh. And then every once in a while, I'm like, oh, yeah, ES6 exists. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. So that's, that's a good... Uh, perspective like we have opposing perspectives on that which is good because like i really feel like css has kind of left me behind a little bit uh with like grid i was telling tori just earlier today like i do not really understand grid yeah uh, but i I understand the value because i've made grids before and used them check out gridbyexample.com okay it really has it's the best sort of quick introduction with demos for deeper dives you can go to jen simmons layout land youtube videos the whole spec is very complex, yeah. and a lot of people will try to throw the whole spec at you, but they don't. There's some really simple ways in that can get you started very quickly and have you doing fun things. Nice. So, yeah. Probably just a disadvantage because you're so used to everything not working properly <laughs> that suddenly you have a spec that allows you to do stuff that you were like, that can't Yeah, happen. there's sort of, there's several like layered fundamental shifts going on. Like uh-huh. one is the browser's all working together, which feels new. I mean, I know that the W3C has been around a while, but... The fact that things mostly work to spec across browsers. So yeah. feels working together new. things, not yeah. new, but the working is new. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and then the spec writers now, Fantasy and Tab Atkins, it's a fundamental shift in how they think about designing the language. Mm-hmm. It's no longer them trying to give us a solution to every problem. They're really focused on making CSS extensible, making it so that you don't have to wait for the next spec you can start building your own specs, and then if they take off, those can get built into the browsers. But that's a real different way of CSS being built, which gives us so much, so many more opportunities. Yeah, definitely. Tell us a little bit about the dynamic side of, of your talk and how you integrate that with, with CSS. Yeah, so one of the things is just, I've seen people quite often passing in 
classes into HTML that then drive different CSS, right? Mm-hmm. So you end up with lots of utility classes, and there's sort of this classitis. Yes. <laughs> and that's for a long time, that's been the only way that we communicate between JavaScript data and CSS layout is by doing all the calculations in JavaScript, picking a class, applying it. So you're saying there would be a class warfare struggles yeah, in the early days? Right. Okay. And you sort of end up with 50 classes and you'd have to know which ones to apply. Now we're at a point where we can really start just passing in the data and let CSS handle it. So something that we're doing a lot in production now is when we need something from JavaScript, we just have JavaScript give us the number. So we built a scheduling app and it's basically a grid of minutes and then we just have a start time and a duration and we think of those as grid lines and JavaScript just passes us that data in the HTML in an inline style and it's totally safe to use CSS variables as inline styles because you can ignore them. You don't have to override them, you can just ignore them. So we just pass in that data, CSS does all the calculations and it just takes those raw numbers divides them by the minutes in the day and lays it out on the fly. And we basically, we set that up and I was, I sort of had this idea going into the project, you know, we've got grids now, we've got variables now, maybe we can do this. We set it up and in the first day of development, we had our schedule entirely laid out because it was just these three numbers, the length of the day, the start time of an event and the duration of the event those three numbers, a little bit of math, and it lays itself out. That's definitely something I think that maybe if you think that CSS has been ignored, like you're a JavaScript developer or something, yeah. um, you know, you might... Um, I don't think it's been ignored. <laughs> <laughs> it's just been ignored by me a little bit. Oh, <laughs> and that's just my own shortcoming. The, the thing about CSS variables that I think gets overlooked sometimes, especially if you just kind of say, well, we have CSS variables now inbuilt into the language. And if you're used to things like SAS, what you're talking about is compile time variables. But in CSS, the the new CSS variables, they're live. So you can make a change to the variable and it is instant updated to everything that uses that variable. Yeah, and not only that, scoping works differently. So in SAS, things are scoped the way you would expect in JavaScript, where it's like, if it's defined outside of a block, it's usually available inside, but if it's defined inside, it's not available outside. But that's all about variables being scoped to the file that you're writing them in, right? They're scoped in a way that's how we write CSS, not actually how we use CSS. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't really make sense for cascading style sheets where scope is a different thing. It's It has to do with the DOM structure. And SAS and post-CSS, all these preprocessors are never going to have access to the DOM. So they have that fundamental limitation. They have to do scoping in this simple way. And CSS variables scope to the DOM, and that means you can make changes at a breakpoint and have those changes cascade. And that's that's a fundamentally different way of thinking about variables. Yeah, definitely. I haven't thought about them that way. Uh, When I think about those and, and the cool things that you can do with like dynamically being able to change things, I'm thinking like, oh, I can have a light theme and a dark theme, but there's so much more to it than that. So when you're using SAS, if you want to make a change at a breakpoint, you have to not only change the variable, but change all of the output that that variable would affect. You have to do that manually. Mm -hmm. And if you're doing it in CSS, you can just change the variable and that will trickle down. Yeah. So all of the calculations will get rerun. It's so much cleaner in your your CSS Yeah, you're going to end up with also outputted CSS that's Right, much exactly. cleaner versus SAS, yeah. where it can do some of those things if you create like functions and all these things that you call right. to do that. But then you end up at the end with actual CSS that has hard numbers put right. in, or you know you can do it in view width or whatever. But you know you still end up with like there's a there's a strict set of this is all there is. Right. And with the CSS variable, you can just change it, and that's changed. Like yeah. you know, and it's it's just one line of code instead of dozens. Exactly. So with SAS and CSS, I can make it so that my dev file looks similar. But that output file is massively different in size. It's so much smaller. Yeah, I think one of the things that turned me off initially about CSS variables was just the way that they're declared. Like, it uh-huh. looked ugly. And I was thinking, boy, there's just so many better ways that could have been done, maybe. Right. But then when you start to realize that 
well, okay, just get over that. It's just a, it's just this how it looks, okay? It just is that. Right. So just whatever. Just get used to it. And then you start to see all the powerful stuff it can do. And it's like, well, okay, I guess I, I was premature to judge that. Because right. I, you know, I'm still thinking of it from stylus or sass where you have a very boring. But now that it can be changed, that kind of changes how you look at it. And also, you're going to write smaller amounts of CSS. That's one of the big things that I was thinking about it from the way I used to write it, where you kind of have like a couple monolithic files, or maybe like you broke it down by page view or sure. something, and you had these, and I was like, that's going to make these bloated files. But now you can really create multiple files that are very small, mm-hmm. very limited in scope, and then you use your variables, and the output's small, and it's like, oh, okay, this is starting to make more sense now. Right, yeah. And with the the way that they're defined the way that they're written is with a double dash before they're basically custom properties and that double dash comes from browser prefixes it's just an empty browser prefix so that's the idea behind how that syntax came to be the other thing is when they were first coming out i was worried about the fact that you had to call them with a function you couldn't just do say dollar sign variable name or just the variable name but that actually has some nice there's some reasons that they did that And that function allows you to define fallbacks for a variable, which can be very useful for allowing that variable to not have a value sometimes. And we can still get the style we need. We can have a default style and then pass in a variable if we want it. Interesting. Um, So do you, is it like just a second argument that you pass to it? Yes, exactly. So you've got the var function in CSS now, and it takes two arguments. The first one is the name of the variable. And okay. then the second is the fallback. I, I feel so behind because I've only ever used it with one variable, oh, with yeah. one argument. And so, yeah, it's I'm handy. learning so much. <laughs> <laughs> I've been playing also with, like, what happens if you, to create toggles, sort of if-then statements, what happens if you make the variable invalid in certain cases, intentionally invalid in certain cases, so that in those cases you get the fallback. So you could do something where it multiplies by a number that won't work to get an invalid value so that you're forced to switch to the, I don't know, there's lots of sort of hacking if-then statements yeah. that you can do. That's really interesting. <laughs> what could go wrong? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We'll see how long it takes before they give us actual if-then. In. Right. <laughs> I mean, we have it with supports and media queries, but they're limited. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah, do you feel like, I guess, seeing the evolution of CSS now kind of coming to these points, like kind of what are your thoughts about how it changes the language and if it's I mean you seem on board but you can you know there's lots of people who maybe feel like oh it shouldn't be a programming language you shouldn't have if you shouldn't have logic and it should be just about styling right well I think back to and I'm not an expert on this but there's some very interesting books read Laurie Emerson's oh now I don't remember the name of the book but she has a great article on the history of what is user-friendly, what we think of as user-friendly, and these two competing philosophies of what is friendly. And sorry if this feels like a tangent. No, I brought Um, it up. (laughs) Yeah, but she talks about these competing ideas. Uh, She represents them with Steve Jobs and Douglas Engelbart, who did The Demo, which is worth looking up. It's just called The Demo, and it demonstrates for the first time a mouse and a a graphic user interface and hypertext and various other things that we take for granted. Oh, yeah, not, exactly. Not like for the first time in 1982. Exactly. And it's a fascinating demo. But he sort of had this idea that if we build tools that are extensible, experts can build tools for intermediate people who can build tools for beginners. And we were able to do this sort of bootstrapping, he called it. We're giving as much control to the experts as possible. And I really like that way of thinking over against some concept that user-friendly means we take out all the options and we only let you do one thing. I really like this idea that instead, CSS can still be simple for people that only need a few declarative values, but it also can be very powerful for experts who want to dig in further. I just love that. SAS was sort of built around the same idea that with functions and being able to write functions in SAS, most people aren't using that day to day, but it meant that I could write complex SAS libraries without ever leaving the language. Mm-hmm. I never had to go to a different language, write a library that would compile CSS. It was just working in SAS itself, writing programs for SAS. That was so much better for me. And it meant that my users could then 
dig into my code if they wanted to learn more without learning a new language. That was one of the great teachers for me, was going and looking at how people right. wrote certain functions. And I would see, like, when you really break it down, it's not that difficult. Like, you right. would see certain things where, you know, like a tool would set breakpoints by you just, you know, give it a, you know, you call a, a function for a breakpoint and you just give it, like, a letter, you know, like large, you know, small, right. whatever. And I'm like, well, how do they do that? And you look at the code, it's really simple. Like, it's not hard. It's just right. abstracting it out and saying, I don't want to repeat these media queries every time. Right. I'm just going to make a function for that. It's going to return these and it's going to put it in. And it's like just being able to go and look at that. And right. it's not some hidden away thing that I don't know how it works. And just I love that, that SAS both gives you the ability to use it without understanding it. And also, I mean, with SAS, you can turn it on by changing one letter in the file name. And it still looks like CSS, and then you can slowly learn. And I feel like CSS is going to be the same way. You don't need to use variables. You don't need to use grids. All these new toys, they're optional. So learn them when you have time. And how is, I guess, what do you think are the, is it been mostly like the the reason that people maybe haven't played with it? Is it just like the idea that maybe browsers don't support it? And kind of where do things stand today with those, with the... Yeah, I think... There's often a legacy concern, and this is something that happens regularly with CSS, where somebody will, right when a feature is first announced, somebody will write an article saying, well, it's not performant, it doesn't do this, it doesn't work in this browser. And then people will never look up the fact that those things change over time, and they'll keep referencing that initial article for 10 years. And that's not what's happening these days with everybody releasing their browsers on six-month increments, things change very quickly. Mm -hmm. So with Grid in particular, it really was, I went to bed one day not being able to use Grid anywhere, and I woke up the next morning able to use it in Firefox, Chrome, and Safari all on the same weekend. And like that's a different way of CSS being delivered yeah. than ever before. Yeah. We really can play with these toys very quickly. We used to wait for IE to update every few years, maybe, right. and fix a bug. <laughs> exactly. Which would then break all the hacks that we had in <laughs> exactly. for all the old versions of IE we were trying to hack around. The <laughs> other fun thing that's going to be changing is with CSS Houdini, which is the JavaScript interface for manipulating CSS that's coming along. CSS is getting a typed OM. It's getting ability to declare your own syntaxes, declare your own ways that custom properties should work, all in JavaScript. And once we have that, we're not waiting for specs anymore. Somebody can invent, it gives you direct access to the layout engine, it gives you direct access to the paint engine. Somebody can, with a little bit of JavaScript, invent CSS grids in a weekend and ship it for their clients. It can go into production right away. Nobody's waiting for the spec. And then once we're sharing those sorts of tools, the popular ones can be turned into spec later. Things are moving more and more quickly. We have more and more power, and that's going to be a lot of fun. Houdini right now is only available behind a Chrome flag, but it's pretty wild what it can do. That sounds amazing. Yeah. Sounds like we're learning. <laughs> like from history. <laughs> what? How dare it's not we? how we do things here in the web. We, we throw it all away and make incompatible new versions. <laughs> Well, yeah, thank you so much, Miriam, for taking the time to, to yeah, speak absolutely. to us. Thank you. We got a good thing going on. Ba, 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 ba.